Who wants to be a millionaire? Well, to be honest, don't we all? Two black guys with good credit, we are doing our part to get you there with this week's guest, super successful business entrepreneur Stephen Hightower of Hightower's Petroleum. Black gold, Texas tea, oil, that's what we're talking about. Yes, oil. Stephen is here to share the secrets of his success. Pot up, sit back, and let's get it. Because we're talking big bucks, people, big tanks. Stephen is making it happen. In the house. Big Sean, why did you think it was important to bring Mr. Hightower here to two black guys with good credit? Well, Arlington, we recently did a show, Black Power, Black Money. <laughs> Wakanda, and baby, we got there. a lot of great response, so I said, let's dig deep and find somebody that can reflect that. And who better not but Mr. Steve Hightower himself, who has been ranked one of the companies, has been ranked one of the 10th richest black companies in America. So what? 10 meet 11. Well, there you have it. Two black guys with good credit. We're about to get into it with Mr. Stephen Hightower. He's going to share the secrets of his success. Who does not want success, people? Keep it locked. Matt? Thanks, Arlington. This sponsorship break is brought to you by Clean. Clean is a financial literacy program designed to educate youth in a fun and interactive way through class lessons, workshops, and web seminars. To bring it to a school or organization near you, please visit www.financiallyclean.com. Two Black Guys with Good Credit is a show for the financially curious and the financially knowledgeable. Mr. Hightower, can I call you Stephen? Absolutely. Perfect. Stephen, can you explain to our audience a brief history of your business background, you know, past to present, kind of giving us the highlights, your your shining moments, so to speak. Really jump shots and touchdowns, all that. Exactly. (laughs) First of all, thank you for giving me this opportunity uh, to speak to your audience today. Thank you for Um, being here. But... Hightower's Petroleum Company is a result of a family-owned business. Uh, My father started in 1956, uh, which is the year I was born. So I say to many people, I've been in business all my life and uh, literally have never worked for anyone else but my family or myself. So I'm one of those unique uh, individuals who have just been an entrepreneur and uh, probably a real example of what a serial entrepreneur might look like. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) That is great. Well, Dion, since we're talking about oil today, because that's the industry Mr. Hightower's in, can you give us a brief history of um, oil in the United States of America? Absolutely. The Universal Oil, Gas, and Mining Company was the first black-owned oil company in the United States. It was also the first oil company that was fully operated by an all-black staff. It was founded by Odessa S. Strickland and located in Shreveport, Louisiana. It got its start right after uh, the start of the Great Depression. So whenever everything else was falling apart, uh, that's when they launched in 1930. The company also mined zinc lead, and silver. But what's most fascinating is that the founder, Mr. Strickland, was also an inventor. So uh, Odessa Strickland invented the instrument they called the electrometer. So this instrument was invented and used to discover oil deposits. And they said it was about 100% accurate, which is pretty amazing at these times. Uh, But yes, what I love is that he ended up creating this into a whole other business in itself, by renting out this device for $50 to $75 per day. So this is just good stuff um, that we all need to know and, and learn when it comes to our history in the oil industry. Nice. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Mr. Steve, now that yeah. we're buddies, getting back to you. <laughs> now it's Steve. It's now it's Steve. What is a wholesale fuel supply company? Is it fair to say that you're the middleman in the sale of oil? I don't consider myself a middleman. I consider myself as part of the supply chain and the delivery of fuel to the end users or the customers throughout the U.S., uh, Mexico, Canada, and South Africa. Um, So when we talk about the being a distributor or a wholesale uh, jobber, as Mm -hmm. it's referred to in the industry, you're talking about someone who, after the refinery is put into the pipeline, there's someone who actually takes it and delivers it to the end user or users that may be for resale. Mm -hmm. And in the case where Hightower falls into that particular category, 
We then pick it up at terminals uh, after it's in the pipeline, and we deliver it to people like FedEx, uh, AK Steel, Kroger's, um, General Motors, Nissan, those types of customers who actually use it, whether it's in their vehicles for production or whether it's in their vehicles for day-to-day -day operations like a FedEx or uh, Union Pacific Railroad. Uh, so a number of customers in a myriad of ways, we are the ones who actually deliver that product and actually make things happen. So are you delivering that in planes, trains, boats? We, we, we supply to casino river boats. We uh, supply mm -hmm. to trains. Uh, we supply to uh, mm -hmm. trucks, trucking companies. Uh, we supply to highway contractors uh, that just do dirt work. We supply to all types of people. And the good thing about petroleum is you've got an unlimited amount of customers that you can actually uh, feed into. And that's what I tell people when they're looking for a business to right. get involved with. Find a business where you've got an unlimited amount of customers. And if you only did 1% of those customers, you would probably not be able to handle all the business that you've got. Well, my brother, I'm calling my brother now. Problem. Let me know where these truck, trucks dock at on the eastern seaboard, and I'm going to bring my SUV there up and fill it up every time I let them know Steve is my boy. Let me get some gas. Well, you know, the only problem with that is, I, you know, I, I have a very hard time selling to uh, brothers and sisters that don't buy 7,000 gallons at a time. <laughs> what are you trying to say? What are you trying to say? <laughs> okay, let's go to the question now. I was just putting my place in. <laughs> okay, we just recently did an episode once again, Black Power, Money Power. And one thing I admire about African-American that do certain types of business where it just doesn't cater to African-Americans. I find a lot of my friends and peers that want to start business African-American, they always look at a business just caters to our people. And I like that your family, your father, I guess, decided, thought differently, was a, like, to me, was a forward thinker to think, like, I'm going to do a business that, that is satisfying across lines. So... What, is, audience, right? yeah, what inspired him to, to do that? Like, what made him have that foresight to think, like, I don't have to do just a black business? Well, when my father started and our family business started, we started in a janitorial business. So I grew up in the cleaning in a janitorial business. Now, saying that, there is, in that particular business, you do have a B to C or a business to consumer because we actually did carpets in people's homes, uh, clean their houses, did windows, all everything on the you personally, I me personally, that's what I grew up doing. Okay, uh -huh. but then there was a commercial side of that where we actually did banks and uh, industrial facilities right. and right. so on and so forth. Got it. As I began to grow into that and understand, I'm starting when I'm six years old, uh, actually dusting the bottoms of chairs and baseboards because that's all we could do. Did I chase my son? You know. <laughs> but my mother, at that particular time, they didn't have babysitters, so we went to work mm -hmm. with them uh, at night, mm -hmm. you know, actually cleaning. That's how it and was. as you grew up, you actually literally had accountants and employees coming and you see business done on the kitchen table, which is the typical mom and pop startup business. That's how I and, grew up. And that's how you actually start, but that's how you get a visualization of what mm. business is and what business can be. And many right. many of us in the African-American community don't have those types of examples and get to see that, okay? Even Absolutely. though my father worked at Armco Steel uh, around the clock for 40 years, he still had a business during that entire period of time where after he got off at Armco, he ran wow. his business. That is so and that was around interesting clock, because we don't understand know? it. He was, you know, it's, I always say there's 24 hours in a day and it's how you decide to utilize that 24 hours and how you try to maximize. And I always say, you know, how your dad was doing. He was hustling. Yeah. And At the end of the day, he was hustling. And he was getting yeah. his family involved and he was teaching them. You know, I bring my kids to the store and, and I hopefully that they just pick up on something and you are picking up on things and... And seeing how business works. Right. And that's when I first found out sleep is overrated. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's what I say. I, I have plenty of time to sleep when I'm dead. That's what I say. That's right. <laughs> then rest in peace. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. We always, um, one of the things that we always do is we talk to young people about the education, the idea that education equals time and time equals money. And while you're getting your education, you can get your hustle on and do something else. And as you were saying, you grew up working while you were starting at six. So I'm just going to ask you this question, but I kind of have the answer. 
Were your entrepreneurial juices starting to flow in high school and college? My entrepreneurial juices began to flow in high school. And by the time I got to college, I was already flowing. Okay, so when I was 18 years old, I actually negotiated my first commercial contract. And I want to make a very distinction between B2B and B2C, because in your previous comment, you had talked about, you know, many of us are looking for businesses that really cater to the African-American community. You agree with that comment? And, well, well, in that particular comment, what you're basically saying is you basically have a B2C or a business-to-consumer business. business. I have a B2B, which is a Mm -hmm. business-to-business customer base. Mm -hmm. And and when you begin to move into a B2B, then you're not talking about someone who uh, have discretionary funds to spend. Mm -hmm. You're talking about someone who has to spend X amount of dollars in order to uh, be a do. part of what they do. They need, so they need they, the service. They, they not, need not, and so in some cases, even with dealing with B2B, you can offer a service that someone may want as a luxury, or you may offer them a product that they need as a absolute. And you want to find that absolute in their business. Wow, that, really? And then it doesn't matter tomorrow if FedEx is going to run at all, they're going to have gasoline in their car. Right. And it's not a maybe, it's a must. Tell me about that first contract in high school. I That particular contract uh, that I negotiated was with a company uh, owned by Jim Walters, uh, Miami Carey, and it was a uh, janitorial contract. And uh, very uh, acutely, can you imagine an 18-year-old uh, dealing with a buyer, purchasing agent, right. at that particular time, you can look back and look at his visual uh, you know, makeup as you were actually forcing your way into uh, the conversation of uh, getting a raise and, and, and where you wanted your price point to be, uh, and he's looking at this little kid, which I didn't look at myself at that at the time, uh, but just looking at the expressions, but eventually, after about three times at going back and forth, we got the contract, and we were able to get the contract at the numbers that we were uh, going after. So, you know, I learned at a very early age, persistence, um, being able to have value, knowing what your value is, that you're able to uh, be successful. And so from that was my first commercial contract negotiations at age 18. You sound like a confident young man. Wow. Well, you know, something else happened at 18. Um, I went to go get a job at AK Steel, which was Armco, which is where my father was. But I wanted to work as a salesman. And uh, they told me I couldn't be a salesman. You know, I'd have to go back to school and, and or I can go out in the plant where my mm-hmm. father was. Right. And um, I did not want to go out in the plant. And I said to myself, if I work for 30 years at Armco Steel, I'll end up with a watch and a pension. But if I work for 30 years for myself, <laughs> I might be a little bit further off. And, um, you know, at age 18, I made that decision. And 30 years plus later, you know, I made How the right decision. How many you know, I was reading about you and you said most small businesses have a difficult time obtaining bank financing or loans. So how did you do financing the early ventures? Because you said when you were doing 50 million in Hightower Petroleum, you were unable to score a loan for your business. Why was that and how did you work around that issue? You know, traditionally in our communities, if uh, you become successful in one thing, uh, whether that's being an athlete, whether that's being a janitor or whatever that happens to be, the, that community that you grow up into really only looks at you as that. Right. So it was very difficult for me to transition from being a janitor like our family had really grown into that community with over a hundred and something plus employees for that community or surrounding communities to think of me in construction and or petroleum. Right. It was not who you are. Because even and though so, you were big, you weren't that It didn't even matter being that big. That just wasn't you. That's right. not who you right. were supposed to be. They you were supposed so to be a janitor. When your dad yeah, had okay. all those contracts, he was still working? Absolutely. Absolutely. He worked at the steel mill for 40 years and he had his business, you know, since 56. So, you know, he, it was an overlap and uh, I grew up into that. Uh, but when getting back to obtaining the loan, obtaining the opportunity to go to a commercial bank lending institution 
and give them a business plan and show them how you're going to grow this business with the type of customers and even your exit, if that is what it happens to be, you're looked on with jaundiced eyes to say that's not possible for you. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I say to most African-American businesses that start, uh, you're going to put that business plan together. Uh, you're going to do all the things in terms of getting a relationship with a banker. You're going to take them out to lunch and all of that. And then the bank's still going to say no. <laughs> right. What do you do? Right. Do you stop? Do you get discouraged? Do you sit on a porch? Or do you go out and find a way to make it happen? Right. And I was one of those guys who found a way to make it happen. And one of the things that you find out about business is everybody is greedy at the end of the day. Right. And what does greed mean? <laughs> greed means that where does the money come from? And the money comes from a customer. All money actually starts because a customer pays. And as long as you've got a customer, a good-paying customer, you can probably get the supply. All right? Mm -hmm. And that's the philosophy that I've used, not to go out and get a person with two dump trucks and then go out and try to find a supply for it. But go out and get a General Motors or go out and get a Duke so Energy. You name drop. Or go out. Well, you, you, you know, names, but, 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 but <laughs> wait a minute. But wait a minute. That's very important because nobody want to support pennies, right. but they'll support right. dollars. Okay. Right. And, and, and if you understand where the game is and if you understand how to play the game, you find that greedy supplier over there that really want that customer that you have that access to and you can get the supply. Now, it comes financing that. All you have to do is make sure that you get that person comfortable that they can get paid. Now, what they're looking for is your ability to pay it on your balance sheet or a bank. And if you don't have a balance sheet and you don't have a bank, there are instruments that you can actually put in play which I had to figure out, and that's what I'm saying. You got to get off the porch. You know, dog got to go out there and chase the, and chase. Yeah, you, you got to chase that car are you sometimes. Young people listening okay. to this, veterans, <laughs> dropping your right. dimes, science on you guys. You guys listening to this? But what you, what I was able to do, is, and and it's a very very you know small but huge way of financing. Alternatively. And that is to use a lockbox at a bank. So when I invoice my customer and my customer pays into my account, there are treasury instructions to pay the supplier and to give me mine. Okay. And as long as the supplier is cool with that, it's going to go into a bank and he's going to get paid and I'm going to get paid too, then he's all right to go because now his credit is secured by really the customer. Okay. And I was able, because I was not able to get $5 worth of credit, okay, in the petroleum field, I had to figure out how I got my suppliers comfortable enough to sell me product to sell to the state of Ohio, which was my first customer, and to customers thereafter for almost, I would say, 20, 25 years. But let me just, the same people that rejected you, which were the banks, you use them as part of the equation to get your customers happy with you and the suppliers happy with you. Put everybody in a room and you kind of sat back and let them all have no, faith in you. No, no, no. No, the banks was not in the conversation. The banks just had an instrument, okay? They're, if they were in the conversation, they'd been helping me finance it, right, okay? Right, right. They're only in a conversation because they got another way. They're a depository, yeah. okay? Yeah. And if you're not doing, if you're not lending me no money, bank three, four, five, and six is not lending me any money, you're still going to have to have a bank depository, exactly. okay? Exactly. And you just look at them as that, okay? Exactly. Not as a partner, yeah. okay? Right. And then they have instruments within that bank that you can utilize to help you. It's not that what they're bringing to the table. It's what you've been able to find out and figure out. None of you guys know that, do you? All right? Yeah. But you got to figure it out. And, and, and sometimes even we can teach our own community how to figure that out. And how do you get someone comfortable enough to give you money when you don't have that bank line of credit? Mm -hmm. They have instruments that can get them comfortable. Once they're comfortable, they can get paid, then they'll deliver for you. Right. And this is the type of conversations that need to be had. When you look at the stats, they are saying that black entrepreneurs are three times as likely to say that they need financing. This is a study from 2014 from the Wall Street Journal. But they are, they choose not to apply. Okay, so. And that's out of fear of rejection. Well, it's fear of rejection, but it's also using the wrong business model because it's very, nobody wants to get excited to lend you $5,000. 
Okay, so if your if your contract is two to three thousand dollars and you need five hundred dollars to get it done, it's not exciting to anyone. But my first contract was the state of Ohio, and let me tell you how that came about. Uh, <laughs> I can't wait to hear. <laughs> <laughs> and so you're leveraging dad's context at this point. No, no, you're on your no, own. no, you're on your own. Okay, so the state of Ohio in 1979 had a set aside that was passed in the state for minority bidding only. You had to be African-American, Hispanic, uh, Native American, uh, and maybe one or two other categories, but not females, okay? And what we were able to do was to actually, we began to quote all types of products that the state was setting aside. And I say all kind of products. We were selling lumber, drywall, metal studs, pinto beans, you know, whatever. They, and the state buys everything. Right. And whatever they were selling, we would go out and find a supplier, quote it, because, again, the suppliers who had it previously being all non-minority could not bid on those particular products. Okay, so, again, you had a customer that they could not get to unless it was through you, and then, of course, you had to put together a financial uh, program to allow them to feel comfortable to do that. Mm -hmm. Well, the state of Ohio set aside fuel one time, and BP, who had the entire state for the last 32 years, oil, major oil companies don't play that game. It doesn't apply to them, they thought. So <laughs> I went and quoted it. And found another wholesale jobber, which is similar to where I am today. Mm -hmm. They quoted me, and my first contract was the entire state of Ohio, of which I took from BP. Okay, and Don't not knowing anything about fuel, and that's what that's another challenge you knew that we had. Knew nothing about fuel, but I knew about business. Right. And as long as you see the back office of business, the accounting, the making sure people are billed, making sure people are paid on time, that's universal. Right. And that can be stuck into any kind of conversation or product. All right. So it didn't matter which what the product was if you knew how to do the back office. Exactly. And that's what I learned growing up is the back office. I read your first okay. hire was an accountant. Well, in High Towers Petroleum, yeah. actually, it was an accountant that I sponsored to come from Nigeria uh, to the United States. And uh, he obviously bringing someone into the U.S. and being that sponsor, he was pretty loyal. So we starved together. It was okay that some days we didn't get paid, you know, when we were supposed to get paid. Right. But we, you suffer through what you got to suffer through to get to where you've got to go. Exactly. All right. We're always talking about generational wealth in our show, and, I mean, you're highlighting it today. Because most people are starting from ground zero with very little being passed on. But you luckily come from three generations of family, business, and entrepreneurship. Tell me about the role that generational wealth and opportunity has played in your life thus far. Well, you know, Reverend Jackson uh, is a person that I highly respect. You know, has Reverend Jesse Jackson? Reverend Jesse Jackson. Okay. Yeah, Reverend Jesse Jackson, someone I highly respect, you know, always says that... Um, Talent and wisdom and effort is always trumped by inheritance. Powerful. And okay, you're gonna have to say that one more time. <laughs> one more Just time. one more time. Talent. Doesn't talent, wisdom, wisdom, and effort is always trumped by inheritance. There you have it. Okay. So even if you look at today's president, mm -hmm. he inherited what he had mm -hmm. and you start at a 50 million dollars well <laughs> not to talk about not to, i'm not really going to talk about the president here in like uh, nationwide tv but or radio right. however however it's just an example that even in my family i have a coo i've got a chief operating officer another child i've got an accounting manager as another child uh, and they will, and they also have inheritance that once I move on, that moves on to them. Right. And if they were total knuckleheads, okay, they could potentially lose it, but they have that opportunity. And that's what we haven't built in our history historically into our communities that transformation from one generation to another generation to have 
what we call legacy. And legacy is not built in one generation. Legacy is built in generations. And how do you, now that I've got my children and I've got my grandchildren now, that fourth generation, you know, showing up and working in the summers, you have to start them early. Okay, you can't wait till they're 21, 22, and then say, I'm going to now bring you back and get you involved with the business because somebody else has their mind and and their whole imagination in a whole nother area. And and you've lost, well, we don't work in oil fields. We we run a clean kind of business. (laughs) (laughs) But that would be a good job. The key thing is, though. You're staring them from a young age. Are you kind of staring your family into business, or are you just bringing, or are you just presenting the business, and hopefully they'll grab on? Well, do you know what I mean? Like you're not saying, "Hey, go sit in that office, go sit in that office," or you should consider going to business school. Are you saying that, or are you just having them be around you, seeing what you do on a day to day? Going back to like you said initially, that dining room table that you grew up in. But a much bigger version of it at teach, this point. We, we got to teach our kids how to work. Right. You can't assume that them going to school and, and playing sports right. is going to teach them how to work, right. how to answer a phone, how to have right. office uh, mannerism, so. decor, yeah. right. Yeah. You know, uh, those things are not natural. Those things are taught. Right. And where I am today, my instincts and how I do business is a, a long historical, chronological building of how business is done. Right. All right. So, so people don't talk a lot about when I was in a uh, medical business that did not succeed or when I may have done several other types of businesses that did not succeed you only see where i am today all right and 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 it was that persistence which goes beyond just what you can think in your mind but it has to have that heart okay and that passion to get through not having no money okay uh for weeks and months at a time and paying those bills has got to be paid but yes i had a family of four kids by the time i was 23 and was still broke Okay, but I knew where I was going. All right. And I did what I needed to do to get there. And that's where that's a fear that many people say, well, I've got a family. What can I do? You go out and work harder. And you make it happen. So how do you find this young, this new generation? What's their aptitude? What do you how do you find them as far as business minded? Like how you are? do you see the same traits or is it a different mindset with all these? The the biggest the biggest difference, which is something that we there's a couple big differences. One, they're just I guess totally involved with technology such that they lose a little bit of human interaction. Okay, with people. And this is a in business is a people business. It's not a transaction. Okay. And 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 so we they're not learning business and personal skills, they're learning transactional skills on that computer. All right. And that is something that you can't buy, you can't give to someone. They have to develop. All right. So that's one thing. And the other thing is the impatience of being able to get to success and you can't get to success quickly you get to success over a period of time and if they don't in what i see in this generation if they don't have a success in a year a year and a half they're out they're, they're out. to yeah they're on to something else okay because this and 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 it and it's not in life does not actually work that way right, right. and many times they're two thirds or three quarters of the way into their adulthood before they actually find that out right. remember <laughs> I started when I was 18 mm-hmm. so to be where I am now at age 60 you know it, it took it took a long time but I had to start stick with something all right in order to make that something something great well you know what I love okay. that you said Steve is that you shared with us that there were Trials and tribulations. There were failures because I think that is what young people, even I find the staff I have, they just look at the success. They just want to talk about the millions. They don't ever want to talk about the struggle, the loss, the business that worked, the business that failed. But one of the other things that I think is important that you have said, and I want you to reiterate it on our show, is we talk 
about something called the wealth mindset. We did a show called For the Love of Money, and we talked about the wealth mindset. You need to see it and believe it in order to achieve it. And you have said when asked, you don't think that you can be great. You'll never be great. And I knew I was going to be great a long, long time ago. Well, Explain that to me. I was great before other people knew I was great. And you have to know that that who you are. How would you know you, you were great, though? Because I knew who I was. And, and who and, was that? And that was a greatness that was somewhere inside of me that eventually would get out to the public. Okay. And every day, whether you were looking or whether you weren't looking, I was doing an outstanding job at whatever it was that I was doing. And I practiced in the dark when nobody else was looking of doing the right things. Right. And that's how you actually rise to be something of greatness, doing it day in and day out, month in and month out, year in and year out, over a period of time, that greatness becomes. Because anything short of that, you're just being good or just having a job or just getting along. And I never had that in me just to get along. I, you know, actually went through a process where my brothers and my sisters had to go, all right? I mean, I had to fire people who did not see the same outlook in business and life, share the vision, because they will mess your vision up. Mm-hmm. And, so and, and you got to understand, I started with my mother and my father and my brothers and sisters being over me, my, bro- my older brother, not my sister. She was younger than I was. But at some point in time, even my mother and myself had to separate. Wait, you fired mom? She knew when to leave. (laughs) (laughs) Moms know when to leave. (laughs) Never have to have that conversation. (laughs) However, what it it amounts to is that you've got to know what's right. And yes, it's good to have family. It's good to have people around you. But there's still, to this day, family that cannot work for you. Right. Right. Okay, cannot work for us for mm-hmm. our company. Mm-hmm. And it's not because you don't love them. Right. Okay. It's, it's not, it's just that they don't have that same work ethic or the same habits or the same type of outlook on life commitment. And, and commitment that you do. So therefore you've got to make that judgment and decision that, yes, I like you. I love you, but you can't work with me. And that, you know, that could be your kids. Okay. But that's, I know. agree with you hundred percent. Well, people, two black guys with good credit. We told you we were going to bring you some gems, but wow. Wow. What? what? Greed is good. You have to work hard. Sometimes you got a shadow box in the dark, and you got to know who you are. And if mama's got to go, mama's got to (laughs) go. Two black guys with good credit. We're sitting in with Mr. Stephen Hightower of Hightower's Petroleum. Big things. Big things. Don't go away. Matt? This commercial break is brought to you by Canvas Malibu. Canvas Malibu is a boutique and contemporary art gallery located in Malibu, California. At Canvas Malibu, it starts with art, and their curated offering of shoes, apparel, accessories, and art are a definite must-see. Canvas Malibu is located in the Malibu Country Mart or online at canvasmalibu.com. Welcome back to Two Black Guys with Good Credit. We are sitting in with the master, the guru, the one, the only, Steve Hightower of Hightower's Petroleum. I know that break must have felt like forever because he is dropping gems and you don't want to miss a minute. That being said, Sean, what do you have for Mr. Hightower? Mr. Hightower, we did an entrepreneur's show called I've Got a Great Idea. And one of the areas I found challenging and uh, we couldn't even get a lot of information on is how do you go from small to medium business, like medium-sized business? Most of us, especially young African-Americans, we stay in the small business zone. How do you transition from small to medium? I would say the two things that, again, I'm, I'm focused on trying to get the African-American community to look at business to business versus business to consumer. And in each case, there's a different pathway in, in terms of how do you get to where you got to go uh, relative to a B2B. And scaling has to do with basically what your risk tolerance is in terms of what you can conceive, not what you have in front of you, okay, because what you have in front of you is small. It may be one. It may be your first one. Uh, but you've got to be able to know what your end goal is. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at a person like myself who 
basically early started with, you know, a million dollar business and, you know, two million dollar business and then 10, 50, 100 to get to 200 plus million in revenue, right. it, you have to be very deliberate about trying to push to that. And you got to be able to count your dollars. So if I couldn't count how many units that I had to sell in order to get to 200 million, there's probably not a possibility of me getting in 200 million. As an example, if I'm a barber and I cut hair and I'd get $40 a head, I mean, I can only do eight heads a day, 10 heads a day, you know, if I'm only doing a head an hour. And if I work seven days a week, I can only cut X amount of heads. And if I multiply that out, I'd still not get to a million dollars. So if you're in a business that you can't count to a million, you're not going to get to a million. All right. And if so if I can get to if I'm trying to get to a billion, I got to be able to know that that's possible. And it, along the way, you got to be able to make a very deliberate effort in order to, you know, go to that. Uh, as simple as that it, it's very simple, but... Some people don't count the widgets. They don't count the widgets. Yeah, that's I basics. Mean, yeah. Those are A, Bs, and Cs. Or they don't feel their business is scalable. You just feel one day you're going to wake up and not scalable. Listen, but all you have to do is change your business. It's, that's not... That's, <laughs> not, <laughs> that's very simple. <laughs> you know, change, change your business. And, and see, the thing is that everything sells. But finding something that people have to have, and I use toilet paper as an example. If you, I mean, I don't, whether it's commercial, industrial, residential, you name it, whatever market that happens to be, they all use toilet paper. And if you had 1% of the toilet paper that was sold in any market, you'd be doing millions. you got a lot of okay. going on. you, got, you, got, you got a lot going on. <laughs> Gasoline just happens to be one of those types of commodities where you have so many kind of people in every category that you can think of will buy gasoline. So you've got the opportunity to have so many different customers. All right? So, so, so rather than finding something that somebody might want to go to your store on the corner, in the hood, on that particular block, that particular day, all right, is much harder than getting someone who has to have their fuel or their toilet paper tomorrow in their organization yeah. or in their home because it's going to be there regardless. And it's so then that's a whole different mindset. And there's so many other things like that in every industry where they have to have it. And all you have to do is go find it and offer it to them. Wow. Okay. That's right. Uh, you're leaving me breathless. You're the guy adding some some relief, but I just got nothing to say except this is science. I hope everybody's listening and taking notes to this show. This is a great show. Um, my other question to you: You were able to lock in clients like FedEx, General Motors, Walmart to help you make you transition from small to medium sized business. What is your style and what is your approach to closing a deal? And how do you and how does that work for you? Patience. Most of the Larger contracts that you get did not happen overnight. My first system-wide or enterprise-wide, which when I say that, that means everyone, every organization within that company, all of their uh, divisions that buy fuel was a company called Synergy, which today Synergy is a utility company that is now owned by Duke Energy. And there was a point in time for maybe 10 years, we sold Synergy at one of their sites in Cincinnati, one tank per month for years until we had the opportunity because we got involved with technology and we were first to market in this whole e-marketplace many, many years ago. And we were prepared and ready that we plugged into that e-marketplace, which was a utility e-marketplace, and that opened us up to have the first opportunity to do all of Synergy, okay, which was Ohio, Indiana, and Kentucky. Mm-hmm. So that was our first system-wide, but that was after... Did you know that was coming? After five, ten years of doing that one tank per month for that loan, and that's all you was going to get, 
No, you didn't see it coming, okay? But you didn't stop, and you did a good job with that one tank, okay, wow, per that's month. so important right? for people. And, and that's, that's the key. You and didn't screw up. good service, good quality, good customer service. And as simple as one tank per month, and you know it's peanuts, <laughs> okay? <laughs> because today, we do all of Duke, okay? And when I say we do all of Duke, now we're, uh, with that merger, the Synergy people took us with them, and so now we do North Carolina, South Carolina, and part of Florida. And just this past January, there was a vortex that came in and dropped the temperature into the zero degrees. And we did over 4,000 loads in that one month just to keep everybody in the southeast warm. Wow. 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 Jeez. Well... Wow. I'll say this. You had to step up to capture those those larger clients. You right. talked about trust. You talked about patience, right? Yes. But negotiation. I mean, there's a stat here. They say only 29% of job... I'm just using an example. Of job seekers actually negotiate their salary. There's there's 70, the average man right. in the workplace. Yep. So 71% of people don't even take the time to negotiate for themselves, right? But if... But those who do, they say 84% are successful when they do actually have the confidence to, to negotiate. Stepping up. Do you have a certain uh, negotiation style? Any key you know, negotiating tips you might want to provide um, to our audience? Well, very fortunately for me, I've never had to negotiate a job because I never worked for anybody else mm-hmm. but myself. And my father, he didn't require that I go through that process. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... But from a business standpoint, from a business client standpoint, standpoint, you always want to listen and you always want to know what that client is really wanting, not what you want to give to that Mm -hmm. client. And most of us really go in and not actually understand or listen to what it is the client wants versus Mm -hmm. what you want to give them. Mm -hmm. And so many people approach me all the time with what they want to do, their dreams, their hopes, their aspirations, and want me to invest into that, okay? And what I always say to people, find out what it is that I do and how you can help me do that better, and then we might be able to do business. And and, and there's a whole, it doesn't matter whether it's me, whether it's Kroger's, whether it's General Motors, what is it that you do, how do you do it, because... GM does it different than Duke. Mm-hmm. Duke does it different than Nissan. Nissan mm-hmm. does it different than FedEx, okay? They all have something different about how they do it. So you got to listen. Right. Well, the side note, Mr. Todd, we different. To my guys, good friend, we, we different. And we got to connect to it. And as different and as different as you want to be, mm-hmm. you're still the same because right. you've, got, you've got dialogue, You've got someone who is at the table with you, uh, hopefully giving you knowledge and information. Mm-hmm. Nothing's different about what we've just done other than the people that you're doing it with. with. Absolutely. So sometimes does it take even months before you even approach a client? No. Why, why, why should you wait a month before <laughs> you approach a client? I, I heard this in the well, banking world where they, had these, where they have these very large clients. Before they even contact them, they've done months of research in advance. So I was just wondering what your style was. My style is not to wait for months of research. (laughs) (laughs) Because if I had to research you for a month or so, I probably went on to something else. Let me just say one more. Now, I'm not going to say that's a bad thing to do, not to do your research, but I'm just saying, why wait months and months unless, you know, I'm sure there's industries that might require that. Let me just say one more thing. Mm. This is Mr. Anal, and this is Mr. Off the Cuffs. Where do you fall in line? Like, like, because I we're always battling back and forth. I'm, like, I'm, I'm a off the cuff anal person. And you got to be that. Okay. <laughs> See, and I love that answer. And moving it forward, I want to ask you something. You are an ISO member, ISO certified. So, I want to know what role that played in helping you to transition your business, but. I want Dion to give me a quick definition of the ISO, please. So the ISO, uh, International Organization of Standardization, they are based in Geneva. Uh, They've published over 22,000 different standards uh, to ensure products, services, processes uh, conform to the highest quality that is acceptable um, across the globe. So how does that help? How does that help move from 
small to medium or medium to large? I was always an early adopter of technology. As I told you, that opportunity with uh, the uh, utility industry where I actually had e-commerce before the industry was doing e-commerce. I was like one of three in, in this whole new e-commerce platform in the petroleum industry. Um, when you talk in terms of ISO and a quality standard, wanting to do business with the automotive industry requires that you are ISO certified. Okay. In the automotive OEM industry, when I say OEM, uh, the original equipment manufacturer, which is the GMs, the Fords, the Chryslers, we were doing business with them long before uh, most other petroleum wholesalers were doing business with them. BP, again, getting back to who controlled that market. BP right. had Ford, Chrysler, GM, Nissan, Honda, everybody okay. in terms of initial fields that goes into those cars when they come off the assembly line. In order for you to even be considered, you had to go ISO. Uh-huh. Right. We went ISO very, very early. And that's a standard that just says that you have to now document your processes and you're in a continuous improvement uh, process and you know how to handle failures and you document your failures to make improvements in that process. So we were earlier early adopters of that. And as a result, outside of BP, we were the first company to get a OEM actual initial fields. And what is initial fields? That is the first five gallons that go to every vehicle that comes off an assembly line. And if you look at all the GM plants throughout North America, every car, every plant throughout North America, including Mexico, gets our gas. And that was done in, ni- in 2008, right at the time where the crash was coming. Now, five years earlier, we had started, five years earlier, pursuing GM, making sure we got our ISO, making sure that we did the testing, got it approved. But after two years of approval process, year three, we were ready to go, and there was no cigar. Year four, we were ready to go, and there was no cigar. (laughs) Year five, they were going into bankruptcy. BP probably wasn't treating them as well as they would thought that they should be treated. Mm-hmm. And it was one month before they went into file for bankruptcy that we took over General Motors, but we were prepared. And the only person, only other person other than BP that could have gone forward because we had had that product pre-tested right. was ourselves. Wow. So it was either BP or me. And we had that opportunity to go. And I, you know, I used 2008 as a very critical date and time because if you look, that's when we got our first black president too, right. mm-hmm. okay? Right. And that's when we got our first black company to take over in that OEM initial fields industry. And subsequently to that, once you're able to do GM, well, hey, guess what? You can probably do me too. And that's, where, and that's how you get that first one to get that second one. But that took five years. Right. Okay. Great. Mm-hmm. Just, just so you five. know, today we're recording today on Martin Luther King's 50th anniversary of his death. So, hey, greatness is, means greatness all the time. Yeah. And I want to say one other thing. Recession-proof business. That's all I'm going to say. Absolutely. And there's a lot of businesses that's recession-proof. Mm-hmm. You just got to find them. Mm-hmm. Find your toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you definitely have a ton of great sayings, and one of them that I really like as well is going deep. Is the football analogy oh about God. going Why deep you, versus so you don't what? No football. You Listen, don't man, football. I've seen the game. Philly <laughs> won. He plays soccer. I understand business. Philadelphia. My wife's from Philly. But what I wanted to get into is something which is really important, which is that oftentimes people jump ship, and what I mean by that, instead of looking at how they can go deeper in the industry they are, they jump ship. So I wanted to have you just discuss that, discuss that philosophy, because I think that's a lot of what you have done at Hightower Petroleum. Right. Um, Early on when we talked uh, about what... When I was got my when I got my first state contract, I was really running wide. 
I didn't matter whether it was pinto beans, whether it was electrical supplies, whether it was guardrail or posts for uh, light poles, okay? Mm -hmm. Whatever the state was buying. And, you know, in typical categories in industrial uh, purchasing, there's about 28 different categories in which they purchase. The category that, and so if you're out trying to sell fuel one day and you're trying to sell clothing the next day and you're trying to sell food the next day and you're selling fasteners this day, you know, that's going wide. You're not really getting down the field. All right. But when you begin to say, all right, now I'm going to begin to focus in the petroleum industry and now we're going to add monitoring. Okay. We're going to add tank installations. We're going to start doing other things that take me deeper in the petroleum space. And then you come up and say, okay, now we're going to take it into a whole nother level in the energy space. And, and, and petroleum is energy, so you're going to get deeper in energy. So now we're talking about bringing in power generation. We're taking, talking about bringing in alternative fuels. We're talking right. smart cities. We're talking, uh, you know, uh, LED lighting. Mm-hmm. All of those, but it's all in the energy space. So now I'm becoming deeper and deeper in the energy space and being respected in that industry for being an expert in that particular right. industry. And you cannot be an expert in all industries. Right. Yes. Okay. Expertise has mm-hmm. tremendous value. You know, I come from a Wall Street background, and we were always, everybody's talking about successful businesses always go public, and the thing is to go public. You're privately held. So why not go public? Why stay private for all these years? Because I can do what I want to do, and I don't have to ask nobody. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you have it. (laughs) That's that's the first thing. Now, do I I like the opportunity at some place to exit? Uh, and, and, and hold that open as a uh, possibility uh, of an exit strategy, uh, as an alternative uh, possibility, it, it exists. But I don't want to sell cheap. I don't want to go put myself out there and lose control. Because, again, you got to understand, in that many years of being in business, how many times I should have not been in business tomorrow? Mm-hmm. And how many people offered me money that would just have taken my company that I turned down? Uh, so there's always been money available if you wanted to give your company away. Right. And, and I never wanted to give my company away. Just fortunately, I got past that critical mass to right. where no longer I'm asking and begging to try to see if I'm going to make my payroll tomorrow. Right. And so now that I'm at that level, I can now plan how I want to exit right. and when yeah. I want to exit wow. and yeah. how I want to exit. Right. Next okay. question for you then. Um, you, you mentioned South Africa a number of times doing business in South Africa. Tell us about what you're doing in South Africa and why you went to an emerging market like South Africa. Well, I... Just like even getting in the petroleum business, it was by accident. Uh, I actually went to South Africa on a uh, safari, and uh, it was going to be a 10-day safari that turned into a three-day safari and a seven-day work week, which is usually <laughs> what happens to me. And, <laughs> and in that... The elephants, the giraffes inspired you, the lions. <laughs> now, there was a young lady who worked for me who was South African, and she was a businesswoman who really actually wanted me to see the business atmosphere in South Africa, of which I found was a very, very strong environment for Africans, South Africans today. Uh, and what they lacked was the some of the uh, skills uh, and basically knowledge that we could bring mm-hmm. with our experiences to a new emer- emerging set of businesses, okay? Right, and right. they've only been uh, post-apartheid 21 years. Right. So many of them don't know really the roots of business, uh, or they have an image of business the same way they were managed uh, by the oppressors. And so things, I mean, there's a lot of education and a lot of support that, that, that you can actually provide. Now, the key is that element of the... African-American, African experience, we all being black. And we all experience the same thing relative to discrimination and oppression in America as an African-American, in South Africa as South Africans. And to be able to, once they are now in charge of businesses, of the government, of agencies, when they find brothers like myself 
who are conscious, who are capable of helping, who's willing to help, right. not just for themselves, but to help the country itself mm-hmm. and, and the African businesses there themselves, mm-hmm. then that's embraced. Mm-hmm. And I was embraced. And as a result, we're doing smart ports in the city of Durban. So We've exactly got developments. Well, you helped them. You found out what they needed. Found out what they needed. You didn't go in there with over talk, talking to them like, "Here's what I have oil." You said, "What do you need, and what? How can I make my business work with you?" Right, and and with the exception of our smart cities and in our some of our technology in the uh, smart space, a uh, lot of things that I'm doing, I never thought that I would be doing. But the opportunities that were set in my lap to say, here, go develop this. And I had the skill set to know how to bring the right people to the table to develop uh, some of those uh, projects. And they are going very, very well. I will say that as an African-American, you probably would have a better shot of doing a billion dollars on the continent of Africa than you will here in the United States. Wow. You're gonna send the pilgrims back home, man. Everybody's gonna be like, I mean, now you better have have your stuff together because you'll come back home naked. (laughs) 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 Don't don't think they don't know. (laughs) Don't play them cheap. So now I'm gonna take a a line from Jay Z in his latest album, 444. Jay said, I bought every V12 V12 engine. What is that now? I'm giving you the beatbox background. Yeah. Oh, yeah. is that what it was? Let's just do this a cappella. Thank you, though. <laughs> so Jay said, I bought every V12 engine. Wish I could take it back to the beginning. I could have bought a place in Dumble before it was Dumble for like $2 million. That same building today is worth $25 million. Guess how I'm feeling? Dumbo. So my question to you is, do you have any moments in your past like that where you wish you could get a financial do-over? Was there, was there that deal that, man, I wish I had done it, that opportunity that, man, I wish I had taken it? Well, many of those types of deals did not, were not accomplished, not because I didn't try to get them done. It's because yeah. I didn't have the financial support to get them done. Right. So I never had passed up a good deal on my own. Okay. <laughs> this man is tough, people. He is tough. No. Yeah, he's like, what? this is a deal. Leave No, well, you know, you don't try to do everything. Again, everybody right. else's dream Focus. is not your dream. Right. But, you know, there are things uh, and opportunities that, I, I mean, could have been home runs out the park. And I should already be into the billion-dollar category, but just did not have the financial support in order to get it over the goal line. That's it. That's it, man. That's the truth. Like you said, this man is tough. He is not playing. He is giving it to you raw and uncut. Pencil and paper, people. Take notes. Stephen Hightower, Hightower's Petroleum. If you didn't know it before, you know it now. This man is getting it done, and he is hanging out with us. It's two black guys with good credit who wants to be a millionaire. Do you really want to be a millionaire? NickNightDirect.com is a fast, easy way to shop online. To buy an item from any U.S. website, just go to NickNightDirect.com. That's N-I-C-N-A-T-Direct.com. Choose your method of payment and we'll ship, handle duties, and deliver your item straight to your door. I'm Sean of NickNightDirect.com and you have my word. What's up? I know you're still with us because this show is on fire. Gems? Gems? Yeah, we're dropping gems. And the thing that I want to add in is business is universal. You guys weren't here in the break when Mr. Hightower um, mentioned that to us. Business is universal. So while you may hear the term African-American being used, well, yes, he's an African-American in the oil industry. So, yes, we're going to use that term. But the gems he's dropping, those are universal gems because business is universal. So now we're going to have a little fun. You all that follow us, you know our speed round. It's usually Sean and I going back and forth, battling it out. Well, now we're going to turn the table to Mr. Hightower in this speed round. So it's going to be short, it's going to be sweet, and it's going to be interesting. Dion? So just doing a little research, there's definitely a correlation between successful people and their morning habits. What is your morning routine? My morning routine is to obviously get up by... Take a shower, do what you got to do, get dressed, and get in the office every morning. All right. 
Life insurance, <laughs> yes or no? Absolutely. You still have it? I say absolutely. You have to be prepared. Because right. you're going to die, you know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> Stocks, bonds, real estate. Which do you invest in and why? I do a little of each and not a lot of any. Uh, I invest into my business. And, and right and right now, I'm growing my business, and that's where my investment is. You bet on yourself. Retirement at 65, fact or fiction? 55. Well, I'm 61, and I thought that I'd be retired by now, and I know retirement in the future is going to look different than most people think about retirement. So I'll never stop. I just may do something different. Groupon slash coupons, yes or no, Mr. Hightower? What? <laughs> <laughs> Do you still use coupons or Groupon discounts? Neither one. <laughs> Credit union or traditional bank? Finally, we're in the traditional banking industry. And I it's a speed round, but we got up to $235 million in revenue before we got our first commercial bank loan. Oh. So everything between zero to two hundred and thirty. Forty-five million was done through financing through trade credit. And that's the only way we were able to survive. Okay, so I have to ask this question: financing through trade credit. Credit. Can you just explain that a little bit more for the people? What exactly is trade credit? Our suppliers actually funded us again through the mechanisms for the most part, but at a certain point they gave you a little open credit, but. For the most part, it was all through suppliers. It was not bank credit. Banks was not going to help me get to where I had to go. And now they're running you down, right? Uh, now it's a whole different story. All right. Bitcoin, take it or leave it. <laughs> Thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you own or lease your car? I own, never lease. Leasing is not a good option for someone who drives a lot. You'll do that one time. <laughs> How did you end up owning part of a soccer team, FC Cincinnati? It wasn't on purpose. It was someone who was working for the Cincinnati Bengals organization, uh, Jeff Birding, who is now the president and CEO of the uh, FC Cincinnati. And actually, I was pursuing lights at the Bengals stadium, which Jeff was responsible for. And he had an idea. And... So I gave him $50,000 for his idea for mine. <laughs> you got the lights? We didn't get the lights. <laughs> so you are also, we want to know what's next for you because you've had the pleasure of being appointed by the president. You've been part of the Department of Interiors, the National Park Foundation, Energy, National Petroleum Council. So what's next for you? You know, the whole notion of smart cities and power generation and in long term, uh, basically generating power from alternative sources, that's where I'm really, really focused. We have a great business uh, in the petroleum space. That's how we made our money. I'm not ashamed of that. Mm -hmm. I embrace it. Right. Uh, we know that it may not be here forever. We're, right. So we're not, you know, stagecoach riders and, you know, going to run it to where it's no longer a viable option. So we, we made a commitment about six years ago to get into clean en energy and to do power and energy efficiency. And that is really where we've got focused efforts and we really feel good about helping change tomorrow. That was a good speed yeah. round. And well, amazing. let me, can I end with something? Absolutely. You know, I think. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think. No. <laughs> I, I think that there's one thing that really stops most people from getting in business and taking the types of chances that I'm talking about taking. And again, it's almost like a rocket ship. You've got to have full thrust. You've got to really, really come with it all the time. That's how you get to the moon. Okay, and I'm trying to get to a billion dollars, and that's what I have to do to get there. I mean, full thrust, all out, all the time. But there's one thing that stops everyone, and that's the fear of failure. Mm -hmm. And I say to all of our listening audience, I never see failure as failure, but as a learning experience. I never see failure as failure, but as a way to practice my techniques 
and to perfect my performance. Yes. Mm-hmm. I never see failure as failure, but as a game that I must play to win. Because you're not judged by the number of times that you fail. You judge by the number of times that you succeed. Mm-hmm. And the number of times that you can succeed is in direct proportion to the number of times that you can fail and keep on trying. Thank you very much. Thank you. you got room for me on that cruise going on, buddy, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would like to be the first to thank um, Mr. Hightower for sitting in with us. This was this was more than I imagined. Like it was really fantastic. I think for our listening audience, you have shared so much. You've been open with us, so thank you for coming on Two Black Guys with Good Credit, and I'll pass the mic to my man, Sean. Yeah, I'd really just like to thank you. As you know, I've I, myself, I've always wanted to be a businessman from the time I can remember, and this is the first time I've really sat with somebody that really, really, truly inspired me, and I really, like I said, it's more than what I expected it to be, and I just thank you for taking the time to come on our show. Yes, I want to just reiterate, thank you. Inspired, enlightened in so many ways. Um, just to get to the business of the show, um, please, everyone, especially after this um, episode, email us your questions to tbgwgc at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Two Black Guys Good Credit. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review to make it easier for others to find us. Like Peter J., who said... I'm glad I found this podcast. For someone who is interested in creating generational wealth and maintaining finances, it's very insightful. Not only are they dropping gems, the humor makes it compelling to listen to. So thank you, Peter J. And if you want to find out and and follow Mr. Hightower and find out more, uh, definitely follow him on Twitter. His handle is Steve Hightower, number one. You can also find him on Facebook at Stephen Hightower. And also online on his, at his website, www.stephenhightower.com or uh, www.hightowerff, that's F is in Frank, F is in Frank.org. Uh, one more to add to Mr. Hightower's profile if you want to find him also at www.hightowerspetroleum.com. Uh, my name is Dion Nichols, also known as the lady with the history, the stats, and the cold hard facts, and I'm out of here. Well, there you have it. Don't let fear hold you back. The big boss has spoken. Do not let fear hold you back. Step up to the plate. It's not about the swings. It's about the hits. Two black guys with good credit. We had an awesome show with Mr. Stephen Hightower. This week, my bottom line, there's so many gems that Mr. Hightower gave us. But the one that really stuck to me was one that he said in the end. Well, two. One is don't don't ever let fear hold you back. You got to step up to the plate and take a swing. The other one that he told me that he said is it's not about going wide. It's about going deep. Become an expert in what you do. Do it to the best of your ability and look for the opportunities that exist in what you're doing today, because becoming an expert has inherent value. And that's something that I'm going to take from this podcast back into my own business and to make sure that we keep drilling down and that we tap everything. Okay, there's another thing he said. God, he said so many things. The last thing that he said that I really did like, you can't make a million if if it doesn't add up to a million. So sometimes you have to reverse engineer the numbers to see if you can hit the dream that you think you want to hit. I'm Arlington, and you know what I say. It's the game of life. It's wants versus needs. I'm out. My takeaway is rewind this show. Listen to it all over again and look at it in your life and apply things to it. Don't think, be inspired by Mr. Hightower, but understand there are gems in here that you can do to change your life. So you need to listen to the show once, twice, maybe even three times to catch what he's saying and then apply it to your life. I'm Sean. I'm out. Your money is your money. Keep it where it belongs in your pocket. When you're not opening presents this holiday season, try smashing your way through some tricky chocolate-coated levels on Candy Crush Saga. In between dinner and dessert, switch and match. During one of Uncle Mike's long stories, master the candy. There are thousands of levels to play in the all-time favorite classic match three game. Get that sweet feeling this holiday with Candy Crush Saga. Download it now from the App Store or Google Play for free.